The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Well, so I think the two big issues they're going to be looking at are one is kind of this First Amendment type argument. You see, because they deal with First Amendment issues all the time. They have strong views about that. And I think that's a way in which they can deal with the case if they choose, which eliminates the need to deal with all the things that they that they don't that are new to them. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 21st, 2023. In an end-of-the-day ruling on Tuesday, the Colorado Supreme Court struck Donald Trump from the Republican primary ballot on grounds that he was disqualified for the presidency as a result of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The decision now appears to be fast-tracked, to Supreme Court consideration that could obliterate it or make it apply nationally. Joining me in the Virtual Jungle Studio to go over all the twists and turns are Roger Parloff, Lawfare Senior Editor, and Gerard Maglioka, a professor at the University of Indiana who wrote a key law review article on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We talked about the Colorado decision, where it's strong, where it's less strong. We talked about how this is going to land at the Supreme Court, which are the parts the justices are likely to accept and which are the ones they're going to pick apart. We talked about the politics of it all, and we talked about what it means to engage in insurrection. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 21st. The Colorado Supreme Court has its day. Gerard, I want to start with you as you are. This whole thing is your fault because you wrote a law review article that you seem to have dreamt up before January 6th, before any of this was going on. You wrote a law a law review article about the scope of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and everything has that has happened since is because of that law review article. So uh, walk us through what the Colorado Supreme Court did yesterday and where the kind of acid test of this uh, opinion lies. Well, first, thanks for having me on. It's it's nice to to, to be on with you. Um, so the court, by a four to three vote, 
ordered that Donald Trump could not appear on the primary ballot for Colorado's Republican primary, which is going to be held in May uh, or March. I'm sorry. And um, really to do that, they had to work through a number of issues, uh, primarily kind of first did state election law allow for a challenge to the qualifications of a presidential candidate for a primary. Uh, and the court concluded that state law did permit such a challenge. And then once they'd sort of gotten over that kind of jurisdictional hurdle, they basically more or less endorsed what the trial court had done in the case, which was to say that based on a good deal of fact finding, that January 6th was an insurrection within the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection through incitement uh, and other actions related to what happened at the Capitol, then concluded that the provision applied to the presidency, which is the point on which the trial court had ruled in Trump's favor. I think that the kind of analysis on the presidency and whether the presidency is an office for purposes of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment or the president is an officer, both of those, the the discussion of the court was, was quite detailed uh, and I think gave a very good account of the position that the whole purpose of the provision would be thwarted if you said that the most powerful official and the most powerful office would be the only one excluded from the disqualification ban. So basically, th that was pretty much how it proceeded. State law kind of endorsing aspects of the trial court's factual findings, basically with relation to January 6th, and then the conclusion that the provision applies to the president. All right. So, Roger, you have been tracking these cases in various states uh, where they have arisen. For those who are kind of joining this subject late in the game, where does this case fit into the national picture? There, there have been a bunch of these cases. A bunch of them haven't been serious. Some of them have. Uh, so give us, before we dive into what happens next, uh, those the sort of the lay of the section three land. Yeah, there's about uh, at least 34, 35 of these suits have been brought in different states. And most of them have been brought by people that aren't lawyers. Some have some legal training, and but they aren't lawyers or they're retired or lawyers, but they're bringing them on their own behalf and they, those have not done very well. About four or five have been brought by real, what I would say, very, very well-prepared teams of lawyers uh, led by advocacy groups. One is the crew group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And um, they were the one behind this. And then also Free Speech for People has brought a number. And Crew brought this. Crew also successfully expelled uh, a county commissioner from uh, his office in New Mexico uh, last year. That was Coy Griffin. He had been a participant in January 6th and had been convicted of a misdemeanor. So 
but it, it was clear all along that about four or five of these were the most serious. And this one had the advantage. Well, it there there's a very expedited state law procedure for challenging the qualifications of people running for office. And uh, it goes directly. There's a direct appeal from the district court, the, the trial level court in Denver, in this case, uh, directly to the state Supreme Court. So it was one of the ones that had uh, the best chance. And here we are. All right. So before we go on again, for purposes of people who, uh, for the benefit of people who, you know, may have a distant sense of what Section 3 of the, of, of the 14th Amendment is, Gerard, what is this provision and what does it say and why are we talking about it all of a sudden? Well, we're talking about it because people in the immediate aftermath of January 6th described what happened as an insurrection. And that word, of course, is featured in the provision of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So that was sort of the first sort of trigger for thinking that the provision might apply. Just anybody who read it could have said, oh, well, if there was an insurrection at the Capitol and this provision says that if you participate in an insurrection, you can't serve in office, maybe some people who were participants can't serve in office in the future. Now, the provision, of course, was written after the Civil War initially to exclude officials who had joined the Confederacy from returning to office unless they receive a special waiver from a supermajority of Congress. So the idea was that in 1865, when the war ended, many of the same officials who had left to join the Confederacy now wanted to come back to resume their old posts, uh, including elected positions in Congress. And Northern Republicans thought this was outrageous that people who had betrayed the Constitution could just walk back into their old positions with no consequences. So Section 3 was really put in to say that those people could not serve unless they demonstrated some repentance or, you know, uh, sort of apology, if, if you like, uh, or if Congress just judged as a sort of policy matter that it was time for certain individuals to be given another chance or for more general groups of people to be given another chance. Now, this, of course, is the first time that we're applying this provision to an insurrection other than the Civil War. And so that's one of the challenges, right? Well, how do we know that this was an insurrection or uh, how do we assess uh, those sorts of questions, given that it hadn't arisen really since Reconstruction? But the initial thought is, well, what happened on January 6th was widely described as an insurrection. And then when you look more closely at it, you see that that wasn't just kind of hyperbole that was actually grounded in an intuition about what an insurrection is and January 6th fits well within a legal definition of what an insurrection is. Yeah, and how would you describe that intuition, the 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 sense that okay, if I go uh, let's use a real example um because I've actually done this if I go and shine a spotlight or a uh, a laser projector on buildings associated with the Capitol, uh, the Capitol Police might come over and tell me to stop, which they did, but nobody would call it an insurrection, right? People would call it, you know, maybe being a jerk or or political protest or 
you know, maybe civil disobedience, um, but nobody would call it an insurrection. But here you have this constitutional language and you have this activity. And as you say, we instinctively start using this language to describe it. And then the more you analyze it, you the more you say, hmm, kind of seems to fit. And so I guess the my question is, what is the character in your judgment of activity that for constitutional purposes can be characterized as an insurrection for purposes of Section 3 versus merely protest activity, merely diso- civil disobedience, merely being an asshole, being a criminal, right? There's lots of things that are short of insurrection that we have other words for. What are the fundamental characteristics of something, in your view, that courts should regard as insurrection for purposes of Section 3? Right. So there are about four elements, really, that matter. One is you have a group of people, okay, and they use violence for a public, in a public way, meaning the violence is is public, meaning rather than secret, and then also that it has a public purpose of some sort. It's not merely a kind of private kind of vendetta that a group of people might be engaged in. And they're doing that to prevent the execution of the law and for Section 3 purposes, prevent the execution of the Constitution. Now, you know, the thing that I focused on in the immediate aftermath of January 6th was, look, this was not just violence directed against the Capitol on a day where the Capitol is empty it's not violence directed at the Capitol when they're engaged in an ordinary discussion of some bill. It was a special proceeding mandated by the Constitution to count the electoral votes. There aren't that many things that are mandatory and of great importance, right? And so then the use of violence by a crowd to disrupt that, right? That puts it into a different category. And so whatever definition of insurrection you want to use, and I mean, there are a couple of variations on what I've said that others have put out there. All of them would cover what happened on January 6th, even if you narrow it to say something like it has to be about the authority of the United States government in some fundamental way, or kind of a core constitutional function, something like that. That would still apply to the Civil War, obviously, but then also to what happened on January 6th. So to me, the key limiting idea is it's got to be about preventing the execution of the Constitution, not just a law. Uh, And of course, also people who are going to be disqualified have to be people who had previously served in a position where they had taken an oath to the Constitution. It's not just anybody who participated. Uh, In fact, most of the people who participate in January 6th would not be covered by Section 3 because they were private citizens. Roger, you you have the language that the court ultimately adopted here? Uh, Yeah. Uh, The Supreme Court, the Colorado Supreme Court said that uh, as, as, as Gerard was saying, you know, there are, uh, there were certain permutations offered and they said, Rather, it suffices for us to conclude that any definition of insurrection for purposes of Section 3 would encompass a concerted and public use of force or threat of force by a group of people 
to hinder or prevent the U.S. government from taking the actions necessary to accomplish a peaceful transfer of power in this country. And what they were saying was, you know, this was basically the poster child for an insurrection. We don't have to we don't have to imagine what the limiting case would would getting together to violate a different law suffice. Here you had something that was pretty obvious, obviously fundamental. Right. And so uh, there are some questions in the YouTube comments that I want to bring out here. People are saying, hey, why does this matter? Trump wasn't likely to win Colorado anyway. Uh, He's going to be on the ballot everywhere else. And so what does it matter if you strike him from the ballot in Colorado? It just, you know, it just sort of formalizes what we kind of already knew. That actually misses something pretty important. Uh, So, Roger, walk us through why this question, you know, why the litigation matters, what the significance of Colorado Supreme Court doing this is. Well, I guess two things. I mean, Trump is not going to leave it out there. He is going to appeal. And that will bring us quickly to the state, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And and I'd be shocked if they wouldn't take the case. You can't really have a, a situation where 49 states have, have you know, uh, uh, one candidate running and, and, and then other state or a few states uh, uh, won't let him run. But there, you know, we also have precedents in this country. And if you let that one stand and you have the Supreme Court of Colorado, which isn't, you know, chopped liver with this uh, decision out there, this was an insurrection and you engaged in it and you're disqualified. Other courts are going to look at that. Other states, uh, secretaries of state can look at that. And there's also a complicated concept that, I'm not qualified to talk to called collateral estoppel. It's, you know, it, it might even be that uh, some courts would would say, well, maybe we're bound by that. Um, or uh, So they can't just leave it out there and say, OK, strike Cal- Colorado, we'll go for the rest. Yeah. And just to, to uh, amplify one of those points. Assuming Roger is correct, and I do, I think he's I think that there is no way the U.S. Supreme Court can leave this question unaddressed. It could as long as nobody had struck, you know, the former president from the ballot. But now it has to answer the question because there is an effective conflict between Colorado and a bunch of other states. If the Supreme Court were to affirm the Colorado Supreme Court, that would effectively mean that uh, Trump could not appear on the ballot anywhere. And so the, the, the potential consequences of this are vast, and we will get to uh, shortly the question of how this is likely to play at the Supreme Court. But before we do, I want to go back to a few salient features of this opinion, um, the first of which relates to a series of points of Colorado state law because the whole first half of or so of the opinion is deals with a set of questions of you know whether the this is properly yet before the Colorado Supreme Court and frankly the dissents 
uh, are all on those points, not on the question of what Section 3 means in this context. In addition, a bunch of the other states that have ducked this question, particularly Minnesota, did it kind of on similar, these aren't ripe yet under state law kind of grounds. So, Gerard, my impression is that the Supreme Court of the United States is likely to think about the Colorado Supreme Court's word on state law in Colorado as final, notwithstanding what it did in Bush v. Gore in Florida, but, you know, that it tends to be quite deferential to state courts on state law matters. Is there any reason why as a, you know, why people sort of thinking about Section 3 and its implications nationally should pause and think about the Colorado state law issues, or should we regard those as, you know, those mean whatever the Colorado Supreme Court says they mean at this point? Well, I think that's basically right, maybe with one exception, and that is there was in one of the dissenting opinions a discussion of the fact that maybe the process given to Trump was inadequate. And you could understand that as inadequate just under state law or just inadequate generally, which might mean a violation of due process under the 14th Amendment. Now, that said, I was a little less clear in reading the dissenting opinion as to exactly what what was a deficiency of the process. I mean, there was a trial, witnesses were called, and the trial court ruled in Trump's favor. So I'm not sure what more was sort of being sought or, or really could have been done other than saying, well, it was all kind of developed on the fly rather than being set out clearly ahead of time as to how such a challenge would be adjudicated. But I'm not sure that's really the test of whether the process is adequate or not. So you could imagine at least some discussion in the Supreme Court about whether the process used at trial was, you know, met some constitutional standard under like a Matthews v. Eldridge kind of balancing test. But I don't know that they're going to be terribly interested in that question. Yeah, it seems to me like when it goes up, as I assume it will, what goes up are the four or five or six questions related to the application of Section 3, which is to say, is it self-executing? Does the presidency count? Uh, does the presidential oath count? Is it an insurrection? And did he engage in it? It, it seems to present those very cleanly in a way that that I'm not quite sure I expected. Yes, I think that's right. And and the good news is that this will all be resolved well ahead of the election, right? I mean, if we had not gotten this decision. We could have been bouncing around for months from state to state looking for a state court that would reach the merits, let alone decide the merits against Trump. And there would have been no vehicle for the Supreme Court to get involved or they could have decided not to get involved. And I think that would have created more and more problems the closer we would have gotten to the election. So now we know it's going to be resolved February, March at the latest, probably. And then we'll know the answer one way or another. It's hard to imagine the Supreme Court finding a way not to decide the merits given the way it's been presented. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, so Roger, talk us through what happens next. The opinion is stayed uh, through January 4th, right? Which, uh, like... Walk us through the 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 date and timing here. Yes, it's stayed till the fourth, but they went ahead and said that if a, uh, a petition is filed, and obviously one will be, then they will stay it until that petition is decided. And in fact, that date, January fourth, is important because on January fifth is the date you have to certify. Uh, the ballots in Colorado, that's 60 days before their primary. And then they went ahead and said further, so if a petition is for cert is, is filed, then the stay will continue and, and Trump's name will appear on the ballot. Hopefully the court will go ahead and not consider this moot, uh, which would be a catastrophe. But um, uh, so then, then it can be litigated on, on an expedited schedule. If, if I could just possibly address one other thing to what you were saying earlier about the state law questions. I mean, I, I think you're exact, you know, you're right that it will be mainly be the questions that you raised that you that go up on, on the federal appeal. But two of the three dissenting opinions really did lay on pretty thick how unusual it was to have an expedited, super expedited proceeding like this on something so important. Um, and there were strong due process overtones. Uh, and, and Judge Carlos uh, Somor, who was the one that basically, he ruled really on, on uh, what we'll call, and we'll let Jerry Gerard discuss this, uh, the, the sort of the Griffin's case decision, which is the idea that Section 3 isn't self-executing, that Congress needs to enact some method of enforcing it. I think that those arguments may quote from a couple of the dissents, because the, the judges were really uncomfortable with uh, trying to, one, one described it as forcing a, a sort of a uh, square constitutional peg into a round hole because one and one i think so more said in 33 years as a lawyer i've never seen you know a, a a case handled this way and he wasn't really criticizing the judge 
or the lawyers who had, you know, done uh, an unbelievable job of uh, accomplishing and uh, this and ruling upon this uh, uh, complex question in the time frame they did. But even that, even they had not succeeded in obeying the time frame of the state law, which is uh, you're supposed to rule within five days. You're supposed to have a hearing within five days and then rule 48 hours later. And that tells you the kind of thing that they're used to adjudicating, which is, is the guy really 35? You know, is the guy really a resident? And so I think those other questions will definitely come up in the atmospherics of these other uh, litigation of these other issues that you describe. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point. You get these on the one hand, you have this process that really does seem ill-fitted for a complex fact-finding like this. On the other hand, the consequence of their argument, if you take it at is that you're writing a provision of the Constitution out of the Constitution. I mean, you know, it's they don't propose an alternative mechanism for adjudicating a question like this. It's not like Congress where you can say, uh, okay, well, Congress has the exclusive authority to decide whether to seat its own members. So that's not an electoral issue. It's a uh, but here, like what a, what are what they're saying effectively, I think, is that there is no mechanism by which this provision gets enforced. Am I missing something? They're saying that Congress, by failing to enact that mechanism or by repealing the one that existed uh, shortly after C the Civil War, is in effect nixing the whole section. And the majority said, felt that was a reason for rejecting the notion that that this uh, that the, the provision is self-executing the idea that you mean congress merely by enacting throws the whole constitutional section out the window that doesn't make sense so both sides will refer to this uh, issue yes i i just add one point which is that since the provision says that Congress needs a two-thirds vote in each chamber to give exemptions, it would be odd then to say, oh, but by a majority vote, they can just wipe out the whole thing. Then it makes a hash of the two-thirds requirement. It, it actually, like the, the fact that, the, that there is a two-thirds requirement for exemption sort of answers, in my view, the whole argument about whether it's self-executing or not, in the sense that, you know, most provisions, provisions tend to say what Congress's role is. So in, you know, in Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, it says, hey, you know, Congress can, can you know, can pass legislation to effectuate this, right? Here, there's no such provision. It says Congress can undo it by two thirds of the vote. It actually does say what Congress's role is. It's just not a the the role is to relieve it. the The default is that it applies, and if you engaged in insurrection, you're you're disqualified. And the the congressional action can alleviate that, but it doesn't. It's not necessary to invoke it. All right, let's talk about how this is going to play at the Supreme Court. I think a lot of people who are cynical will say, 
Trump appointed three justices. There's a 6-3 conservative majority on the court. Uh, therefore, um, you know, this is uh, living on borrowed time. On the other hand, I do think there are some people who say, wait a minute, this has a highly textual basis. You know, it is at least a little bit awkward for justices who purport to be textualists to write out of existence a provision of the Constitution whose meaning is fairly intuitive based on its text. They don't have an easy way to dodge it. And so, Gerard, get us started. What, how do you imagine this plays? at the Supreme Court. None of them have stated views on this subject. What happens when this shows up? You know, your guess is as good as mine, basically. I mean, when you have no track record to look at on a particular area of law or the views of the members of the court on that area, I mean, it's much more up for grabs. Uh, They're going to have to bone up, basically, on this provision. uh, And they're probably already doing that. And so I think that's one wild card. Now, a second would be, well, what what if anything might happen between now and when they hear the case? And of course, one thing that's going to happen probably is there are going to be some primaries. Uh, I mean, I don't know how rapidly they're going to put this on their docket, but you, you got to believe they can't decide the case before Iowa and New Hampshire, for example. That's probably a little too much to expect. So There'll be some contests. There'll be other conversation. You know, does that have any effect? Now, if if it gets put off a little longer, well, there's a criminal trial date that's kind of looming in March. What? How does that interact with it? So I think all of that is going to be hard to sort of gauge. Now, here's the other thing to say about it. So this is a story I'm, I'm fond of. In 1937, Franklin Roosevelt calls the leaders of Congress in to tell them about the court packing plan. And as the leaders are leaving, one guy who is the chair of the House Judiciary Committee turns to the others and says, boys, this is where I cash in my chips. You know, by which he meant he was going to oppose it, even though maybe that was going to be the end for his career. Right. Because he was going to be going against a very popular president of his party. Maybe this is the time when a couple of the justices are going to want to cash in their chips. That is, maybe they're going to decide, look, uh, this has all gone too far for us to let Trump continue with this. And hard to say where people reach that point. Right. And they may not. But you can imagine that, that they will, given what you've said about sort of the strength of the underlying legal claim, as well as sort of the atmospherics that will be going on between now and whenever they hear the case. Roger, what do you think? Is this one of those uh, situations where we all spin ourselves up because, you know, Bob Mueller or uh, Russia or collusion, and then it kind of spins down? Or is this one of those situations where, you know, it's been a sleeper that we've been aware of for the whole time since January 6th. And, uh, you know, only Gerard Magliocca has been really laser focused on it for 
uh, you know, and you, uh, Roger has written about just about every single one of these cases. <laughs> and then there have been some, you know, Johnny come lately's from, uh, from, uh, the university of Chicago and, 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 and other, other law schools. Um, but I mean, basically this is an issue that the more, more time you spend with the text and history, the, the more, not less, uh, it actually seems to govern this situation. And that will be as true of conservative justices as it is of, of the law professoriate or, or any other group of people. Well, obviously there are a lot of powerful conservatives and Republicans who would be only too happy to see somehow a deus ex machina remove Trump from the formula. But that said, I think we should also notice and say that the judge below was a Democrat appointee, Democratic appointee, and all seven of the Supreme Court justices in Colorado were Democratic appointees. And it got through four to three with some very strong dissents. Strong, I would say, about the procedural discomfort that something of this, with these stakes, would be decided, you know, in such a compressed time schedule. It was a it was a bench trial. It was not a jury trial. There was no discovery. There was no time for it. There were no subpoenas. There was no time for it. So, you know, it could work the other way. It could be that, you know, some of the uh, Democratic appointees on the Supreme Court will peel off, that maybe this is too much for them, and that the compromise will be to uh, the the it's not self-executing, even though that doesn't really uh, it's it's unsatisfying as well. But but you do have this 1869 ruling from a from a, a Supreme Court Chief Justice not acting as a Supreme Court justice. So uh, to to back you up. So um, I really don't know. I, 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 I but I thought some of those. Uh, dissenting opinions, although not strong legally, they're strong on a on the due process issue. They they make you uncomfortable. They will make the justices uncomfortable. That something of this of these stakes is being decided so quickly. In fact, if I can just mention, it, it, it's the first time I've seen two of the three dissenters talked a lot about something that no expert ever brings up because because uh, there's no precedent for it. it it doesn't you don't need it but they said you know they really would have liked to have had an insurrection related pros criminal prosecution first the chief justice boatwright said yeah if he had been convicted of a crime uh, so that he had all of his due process then i'd be happy to go through this accelerated process and the second one, Somore, he was saying he thought 18 U.S.C. 2383, the, the, the criminal insurrection law, is in effect the only, you know, that is Congress's enforcement mechanism for right now. And that's the only way to enforce Section 3 at the moment. So there were a lot of references to 2383 
which, you know, I haven't heard lawyers raising for the most part, but I've heard a lot of non-lawyers, you know, on Twitter, I get a lot of this, uh, but I was surprised to see it being taken seriously. Yeah, I, I have to say that argument does not move me at all in the sense that it cannot be that if the Constitution uses the phrase insurrection and then Congress defines insurrection for criminal purposes, that that means that that word in the Constitution is bounded by what Congress did as a, you know, you know, statutorily defined as a criminal matter. I believe that statute is it's not incorporated by reference in the constitutional language, right? You know, I, I'm confused about that. I thought that statute went back to before Section 3. I thought it was 1862 when the first version of that statute uh, was enacted. The court seems to be mistaken about that. And there might there's even a typo where some, I assume it's a typo, where they say it was enacted in 1994. It, that it obviously isn't the case. It was I, I, there were, I know of a prosecution under it in 1894, but so uh, that part of the decision was showed uh, showed that uh, this was uh, an ex- expedited appeal. Right. So, all right, Gerard, and then Roger. I'm curious. This will go up. I agree with Roger that there are some sort of the 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 state law atmospherics are going to be a factor. But ultimately, I think the question is going to turn on one of these areas where the federal text seems pretty obvious to the viewer who's uh, just comes to it plain, but lawyers can have really developed some real arguments about it. Uh, And so each of you, I'm curious what you think the questions are that the justices are going to care the most about and be most fixated on here. I'll just lay my cards on the table. I think it's going to be the, is the president uh, actually an officer of the United States, which sounds like a completely crazy question, but is actually one on which I think, you know, Josh Blackman and Seth Barrett Tillman have made a at least colorable argument that the answer is this doesn't apply to the presidency. Well, so I think the two big issues they're going to be looking at are one is kind of this First Amendment type argument. You see, because they deal with First Amendment issues all the time. They have strong views about that. And I think that's a way in which they can deal with the case if they choose, which eliminates the need to deal with all the things that they that they don't that are new to them. Just walk us through that. How would it work? It would be well the speech is not incitement. It's First Amendment protected under Brandenburg. And so you can't call an insurrection what's really First Amendment protected speech. That's right. And 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 that that might be particularly true for core, for political speech, right? Which is kind of core to First Amendment protections and so on. So I think that Brandenburg will get a lot of attention in the Supreme Court. I think the second thing is, I think they will care about this self-executing issue, as as Roger said, because look, the fact is a state court is less inclined probably to say 
uh, to agree with the proposition that they can only do something if Congress authorizes them to hear the case. I mean, they're a state court and they're they have their own prerogatives. Um, the Supreme Court will be not so worried about that, and they'll be interested because Chief Justice Chase was the Chief Justice, and even though Griffin's case was not written in that capacity, they'll they'll give it its due for that reason. I mean, the officer argument. I don't know. I I guess I think part of the problem is they're being presented at the same time with this question of can the president be prosecuted? Can a former president be prosecuted? Does he have immunity? And and I just think it's all part and parcel of a kind of message they may want to send that, look, the president's not above the law. And so if you say, well, yeah, he engaged in insurrection, everything is in order, but you can't apply it to him because he was a former president. And if he were anybody else, it would be applied to him. I I just don't think that's going to carry the day. I mean, but that's just my two cents on that one. Roger, what do you think? What, when, what are the issues that when this goes up, you think the the court is really going to focus on? I think the self-executing issue is the one that is going to be most appealing to those who don't want to disqualify. The Section 3 doesn't apply to presidents. You know, none of the dissenters went that route. None of the dissenters here said, no, I think that, you know, the judge was right. That was a convincing argument. You know, at, at oral argument, a number of them kept asking why that wasn't absurd, including one who is among the dissenters. She was, you know, that argument was very unconvincing to this panel. There's maybe one, uh, just the dissenters, so more, who said in his opinion that he thinks, uh, you know, it's arguable at least. So there wasn't a lot of encouragement to go that route. I guess if you want to end this once and for all, the Section 3 doesn't apply to presidents, will still leave open the process, you know, the possibility that, some, you know, that, you know, we right now we have Jason, we have Jacob uh, Chansley, the uh, QAnon shaman is uh, wants to run for Congress. We have, you know, there are other people, Jim Jordan, uh, there are other people that uh, have issues with January 6th and that won't, so that'll still be bubbling. It's hard to know what way to, to go if you if you want to escape this issue uh, once and for all. But I I think the section three isn't self-executing among the alternatives is is the more is the most plausible. And what about, you know, it's interesting. We've we've all identified different arcana as possible ways out from whether the provision is self-executing to whether it technically applies to the presidency. None of us said, uh, gee, the problem that they're going to have is that five justices are going to say January 6th wasn't an insurrection and that Donald Trump didn't engage in it. I guess, Gerard, you got closest when you said maybe maybe his activity can't count as insurrection engaging in it because some of it might be First Amendment protected. But there's some of his activity that's clearly not First Amendment protected. Um, And so I'm curious whether either of you see, you know, five justices saying, no, this actually really 
you know, the whole premise of that Magliocca uh, uh, law review article was wrong. This doesn't really sound in, in insurrection at all. I got to say, I don't see justices saying that. Do, do either of you? No, I don't think so. I think they've got other ways to resolve it without getting to to that question. And and, and I think, frankly, also, it's just a, it's a, it's a hard argument to make that January 6th was not an insurrection, even if you adopt a narrow definition of what an insurrection is, so long as you're not because even if you want to say, I mean, the narrowest definition would be we well, have to try to overthrow the government, even though that's not how people understood insurrection in the period leading up to the 14th Amendment's ratification. But even there, I mean, you can make something of an argument that that was some an attempt to overthrow the government, right? If you say the duly elected government. So, I mean, it just, no, I don't think that's a ground they're going to go on. I think they're, they're much more likely to go on the ground that uh, Roger referred to about self-execution or perhaps just invoke a very broad understanding of the First Amendment to shield kind of almost everything from scrutiny. Their their record on insurrection was just terrible. I mean, the the record that, that, that's coming up, you know, they wouldn't even offer a definition. The Trump's lawyers wouldn't offer a definition. They would say, this isn't enough, but I won't define it. And then they said, well, it needs to last longer than this. And it needs to be geographically wider spread than this. And the judges would say, and what's your authority for that? And 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 it really ought to involve firearms. What's your authority for that? It was a really, I, I would be amazed if anyone wants to go that route. All right. So, Roger, how quickly is this going to happen? Uh, give us a little bit of a, a, a roadmap. We have today the uh, Trump uh, cert before judgment brief due in the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court created a really quick briefing schedule for that. Uh, are we looking at days or, or weeks or months before the court takes this up and maybe resolves it? Well, I, f- I forget the uh, the uh, how many days you have to file a petition for cert, but obviously they will do it within before January 4th, and that'll be sufficient then I assume they will. It's an expedited proceeding, but I'm really not a uh, an expert on Supreme Court procedure. So uh, I, I know they can go quickly when they need to. I expect to hear within a couple months. I mean, to get to a resolution within a couple months. What do you think? What's what's your expected time frame on this? I mean, if I had to take a guess, I'd say you get an argument towards the end of January and you get a decision sometime in February. Yeah. So quick. Yeah. Because of the primary calendar is going to be moving along. I mean, now the irony, I suppose, is that if uh, Trump wins the early contests and kind of is going to clearly be the presumptive nominee, it gives them a little more time to decide if they want to, because there aren't really any more active contests going on. Um, But, but I still think they'll, they'll want to get it done promptly to sort of just settle the matter uh, before there's too much uncertainty. Right. And, you know, obviously the the huge winner here in the event of, 
you know, actual disruption by the Supreme Court is kind of normie Republicans, right? Who, if you create doubt uh, about whether Donald Trump is allowed to be on the ballot, that could be a big a windfall for the Nikki Haley's of the world or the Ron DeSantis's that you you end up with a nominee that is, you know, much less, uh, you know, tainted by January 6th or untainted by January 6th uh, in a fashion that ironically would be much harder for Joe Biden to run against. We are going to leave it there. Gerard Magliocca joining us from Indiana. Roger Parloff joining us from somewhere in eastern France where the sun has set. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the great Anna Hickey. Hey, folks, become a material supporter of Lawfare. It's the end of the year. You've been meaning to all year. You know you use these uh, services that we provide. You know you value them. And you know you should be supporting them, but you just haven't gotten around to it well. This is the time. Come into the light. Go to lawfaremedia.org slash support and uh, make your presence felt. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. 